Welcome. Welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock. Happy Friday uh, to you and yours. The weekend is finally here. It's my favorite day of the week. Uh, I get to go visit my mom and my family in Indianapolis. Uh, so listen, I, I, that's why I'm in a bit of a hurry today. Uh, I'm going to get right to it. We have an awesome show planned for you today. TJ Moe is back with us for a third day here in Nashville. TJ, good to have you back. Mm, thanks for having me. Uh, we will discuss, we'll bring on uh, Delano, Professor D, Delano Squires. We'll discuss his uh, latest column for The Blaze where he suggests that America owes Rachel Dolezal. You guys remember Rachel Dolezal, the white woman who pretended to be black, uh, ran the NAACP, I think, in the Pacific Northwest, Washington area, whatever. Uh, he thinks we owe her an apology. Uh, I can't wait to hear that explanation. Uh, Steve Kim's going to be here uh, to help us talk about a, a great column that Ethan Strauss wrote on his Substack about the NBA uh, going away from wokeism and that they've done it quietly and behind the scenes and that it's actually helped the league. Uh, but we'll start uh, with Delano, uh, and we'll start a little bit off topic, but not off topic. There's great synergy between these topics, between what Delano wrote about and a Washington Post story uh, that was written by Jennifer Rubin. The headline of the story is, GOP is no longer a party. It's a movement to impose white Christian nationalism. Uh, that's a mouthful, but I want to read you an excerpt uh, from the column that's even more of a mouthful. Uh, she goes on to write, to explain this, one must acknowledge that the GOP is not a political party anymore. It is a movement dedicated to imposing white Christian nationalism. The media blandly describes the GOP's obsession as culture wars, but that suggests there's another side seeking to impose its views on others. Wow. In reality, only one side is repudiating pluralistic democracy. White, Christian, and mainly rural Americans who are becoming a minority group and want to maintain their political power. Wow. I read this, and Delano, I, I immediately thought of you uh, because I thought of myself probably first, but then I thought of you and just the conversation we could have because they're trying to define Christianity mm. as white and anti-black and trying to subtly message to black people, if you're a Christian, you're su supporting Republicans and racist white people, and basically they're trying to subtly tell Black people, abandon your Christianity. Uh, it is a tool for white supremacy. And, and what really upsets me is that people are buying what they're selling. That's what concerns me. And it's, it's literally, I talked about this yesterday a little bit with Royce White and was telling, previewing, like, I'm going to talk with Delano about this tomorrow, to, which is today, uh, that we're buying this nonsense that the thing, Christianity, the thing that saved us, liberated us from slavery, uh, was the backbone and the strength of the civil rights movement. Now it's white nationalism and we should reject it. And it's the Washington Post, which is in Washington, D.C., 
one of, if not the blackest cities in all of America, that hometown newspaper is publishing articles with a steady drumbeat of black people, don't be Christians. Mm. I don't know if I've read a headline or story more offensive to me. So, so Jason, I think um, this column really picks up in some ways on the conversation we were having last week about Taylor Lorenz. And, and in that sense, I'll, I'll say this, it is yet another piece from the Washington Post that I find thoroughly uninteresting and mediocre. Um, Jennifer Rubin has long, long TDS, not long COVID. She has had Trump derangement syndrome um, with an extra side of orange man bad for un- basically since 2016. And one of the symptoms of, of long TDS is that it dulls your ability to accurately perceive the world. So I actually, in, in my notes, clipped the exact quote that you have, and particularly this part where she says, only one side is trying to impose its views on the, on, on the other. I mean, I, I, I couldn't believe what I was reading. And again, it's sort of like Taylor Lorenz where she complains about people doxing and harassing people. So it's, it's, not, it's not just um, an example of yet another person on the left who has no sense of self-awareness. I think what it is, is this is um, what happens when conservatives start to use the leftist tools against leftists. Put another way, ain't no fun when the rabbits got the gun. And when you hear them saying, ouch, in, in, in print and on social media, and trying to say, well, they call us groomers. We're going to call them groomers. What you're hearing is someone who's acting in desperation. And that's what this sounds like. So I'm familiar with the whole white Christian nationalist you know, thing. I see it in sort of the evangelical circles I travel in. Um, sometimes it's called Christian nationalism with the whiteness sort of inferred. But the truth of the matter is um, everybody is looking to impose their worldview on someone else. And... When I see, for instance, black churches basically, you know, um, lifting up Justice Katanji Brown Jackson and her elevation to the Supreme Court and analogizing that to Jesus raising from the grave, I realize that everybody's playing this game. But in this case, as I said, Jennifer Rubin is completely off because she, she clearly doesn't know what she's talking about in terms of where things are now in the culture. Um, But as I said, the the writing is not particularly persuasive. She talks about white Christian rural voters, but never names them. This is just like an an ephemeral force that's out there. And and the last thing that I'll say is, ironically, what Jennifer Rubin is doing, she's both identifying a demographic group, but, but there's something else going on below that, right? When she uses white, Christian, nationalist, she could have thrown in heterosexual. Um, she is speaking to normative categories, at least to, you know, th- th- this is the language of normativity is used, you know, in in, in CRT literature and, and queer theory and all these other things. So w- w- she's speaking to what is normative or what we have become used to as normative. And that's why the opposite of that, right, is always people of color or, you know, black indigenous people of color, BIPOC, um, uh, LGBTQ, 
um, atheist, and then globalist. And I, I love the way you cued the subjects because you talked about Washington Post as a hometown newspaper. It, it's, it's a global newspaper, just like the New York Times, right? I, don't, I grew up in New York. I never saw the Times as my paper. I would pick up the Daily News if I wanted to learn about stuff going on in the city. But the Times is really uh, concerned with being a, a, posmo, a cosmopolitan rag. And I think the Post is operating in that same sense. So I, I, I hope Jennifer Rubin um, gets on some uh, remdesivir or some other treatment because her, her long TDS sin, sin, uh, symptoms are really starting to show. Delano, I'm sitting here talking to two black Christian God-fearing men. And so I read through this article and my only takeaway, aside from just, I mean, paragraph after paragraph of stupidity, was that the idea that Christianity is only for white people is mm. perhaps the most racist thing that anybody could ever come up with. Because the idea is, is that your soul is not worth saving. Forget what mm. God says. How about the culture will save you? And so, you know, it's, it's one thing if you say, hey, that guy's a racist and, and you can go through life talking about politics, right? And we can argue and say, this is our biblical worldview. But when the idea actually comes out and says, Christianity is not for you, you're black. I'm not sure there's a more eternally racist idea that could be conveyed. I, I agree with you 100%, TJ. It really is, um, she's the other side of the coin in terms of um, sometimes you'll, you'll hear black folk who are anti-Christian say, you know, Christianity is the white man's religion. And Jennifer Rubin is really taking on that, that idea in this piece. The other thing that she did, because at one point she talked about white people who can change the systems to, um, you know, undo centuries of injustice. I'm paraphrasing. But she, this is, again, we talk about normativity and subversion. Um, that, that type of thinking is how you get 60 plus years of liberal public policy aimed at black folk whose ultimate impact is to um, incentivize dependency. So when Jennifer Rubin thinks about um, black people, and I'll say black, not people of color, but, but particularly black folks, she's thinking of a class of people who are downtrodden, marginalized, oppressed. She talked about criminal justice and, and so on and so forth. And she sees the, the great white hope, white men, white Christian men, as the savior of that class of people. And as I said on, that, on this show, I reject any damsel in distress politics. I'm not interested in it. I don't need a white knight. Um, people who say that, oh, you, you shouldn't talk about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. I'll say this, I'd rather be pull, pull myself up by my bootstraps than to be pushed around in your bassinet. So. Jennifer Rubin is speaking to a bunch of people who think of themselves as babies who need to be pampered, um, swaddled, given a nice, TJ, you know this, you, you have your nighttime routine, you, you, you bathe, <laughs> your lotion, you, 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 you give the warm milk, you swaddle, and then you lay them down to sleep and you say, there you are, sleep softly, my, my sweet princess. I'm not interested in that, I'm not that type of guy. What you're talking about both of you is, in my view, what her article conveys is that the left is clearly saying, we want to be your God, abandon mm -hmm. 
that one in the Bible, that one that instructs you to stand on your own two feet and take care of yourself and commune, engage with other believers who believe the same thing as you, standing on their two feet, and, and instead, no, us white liberals, we will ration out, we want you to be dependent on us, and we will ration out what you need to survive, and we will determine what level of success you can have, and we're diametrically opposed. We're, we're a different, we're God, but we're a different form of God. We don't mm. ever want to develop you and get you up out of the nest like any other nurturing parent. God is your father and a father, a parent wants to nurture you, get you up out of the nest and able to take care of yourself. We see animals do it. We see mm -hmm. everybody. Their whole thing is about developing you to a point where you're on your own. The left is telling black people and people of color or whoever, or their constituency is like, to be dependent on us, you don't ever have to leave the nest of the house. We got some Section 8 housing that we built for you and uh, we'll send you an EBT card and you can go charge up whatever you need at the grocery store. And you know, maybe if we get the right president, we'll send you a cell phone and we'll pay you. But again, it's never about you standing on your own two feet. And mm -hmm. it is a God complex that they have and that I see in this article. And it's a steady drumbeat message of leave Jesus Christ and God alone. We're a safer bet. We, we, we got a deal that he can't be, you would have to work hard doing it his way, our way, yeah. we got you. Yeah, it's and I mean, you, offensive you, 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 to see me. this, you, you see this in every level of society. I mean, I even see it among, you know, sort of in, in evangelical Twitter, right? There, there's certain personalities, I won't name them because I don't want to give them any, any shine, but um, these are white guys who spend a ton of time talking about racism and they write long treatises on, on CRT, and, and they'll say things to this effect. Well, you either have to believe that systemic racism is real, or you have to believe that there's something specifically wrong with black people. And I mean, that, that type of uh, framing puts most, even white conservative readers in, in theological and logical handcuffs. So they, f they feel like they have to choose between those two. But my thing is, black people are people first, and we have all of the rights and privileges um, that come with humanity. And, and those include a basket of virtues and a basket of vices. So I reject any type of you know, ideologic, ideological framework that says that if TJ's child commits a crime, then it's because of privilege and because of some personal defect and because that that person is individually evil. But if, if my child commits a crime, it's because of the forces of the system and, and because his local rec center wasn't funded at the right amount and because, um, you know, of things that happened to his ancestors 200 years ago. Because what that ends up doing is saying that only white people can be truly human. Only they can act with um, moral agency, and they are the subjects in their autobiography, 
whereas black folk, we are the objects. We are bit players um, in the background, and our autobiography ends up being all about the virtue of white liberals. Hmm. That is funny. So the idea of free will only applies to white people. That is their that is the, the basis of their belief. So the, the Democratic Party does not care about black people. I don't think they care about white people either. And by the way, neither does the Republican Party. I don't think mm. either party cares about people in general. Whoever the government is constitutes the party and they care about power. And so what the Democrats figured out back in the 60s is if we can convince people to not even ever try to stand on their own two feet, then they have to rely on us for everything. If they try to stay on their own two feet, then they have to rely on God for things because he's mm -hmm. the one, if you're, tithing is a good example of this, right? You give 10% of your tithe, particularly if you don't have much money and you have to rely on God because you're giving away money that you feel like you don't have. That's why tithing is such a great exercise. The idea behind part of how getting God out of everything has turned into a power grab is that if you never have to try, you don't find out if you can. And if they find out they can, they don't need us and they can just rely on God because they can. So it's all been, I mean, we're at like a 60 year period now of the government figuring out that the only way they can get power is to hold people down, get them to, to completely rely on them, and if they completely rely on the government, why do they need God? Bingo. Uh, yep. Delano, I wanna work your last column into this conversation, because I think there's great synergy here in terms of, of and, and when I first read it, I was like, is he being sarcastic or does he really believe America owes Rachel Dolezal uh, uh, an apology? And then when I got done with it, I said, no, I actually think he's somewhat being serious. Like, you know what, she was right uh, because if we're gonna go down this path that transgenders, that a man can say, well, I feel like a woman and we all have to respect it, why doesn't Rachel Dolezal have the right to say, I feel black and we all have to respect it? I mean, I, I, I've long been a fan of Rachel Dolezal. Um, not because I subscribe to, you know, her belief system or believe that she's actually black, but because sometimes you have to see something that is completely insane and ridiculous to be shaken out of a stupor. And I think we had, and I said this in the column, Jason, we had an opportunity in 2015 to, and I really do believe this, to change the trajectory of our nation as it relates to personal identity. And that was in the summer of 2015 because um, that was the period in time in which Rachel Dolezal was, you know, found out to, to be white and, you know, she had, she resigned from the NAACP and you know, she did interviews and became, you know, the butt of jokes on SNL and so on and so forth. She resigned from the NAACP on June, I think it was 15th, 2015, somewhere around there. Exactly one month later, ESPN presented Bruce Jenner, who now was going by Caitlyn Jenner, with the Arthur Ashe Courage Award at the ESPYs. So within the span of a month, we as a nation said that uh, the plantation logic of the 1800s, right? What, what, what white men who had certain ideas about race, who, their thoughts and words matter more than God's eternal truth about biological sex. Mm. 
And as I say in my piece, that is the ultimate sign of white supremacy. You can't, you, you can't get any more white supremacist than thinking that these white men, what they say, their, opinion, their temporal opinions on matters of race matter more than God's eternal truth on matters of sex. And we blew it because we made fun of racial dolezal and, some, and people did try to raise the issue of transracialism, but we, we swatted away and said, oh, black is not just some identity that you can put on like a costume and black is not how you feel. But at the same time, we were telling Caitlyn Jenner, well, maybe gender is how you feel. And if you put on a corset and you, and you, you know, have the right combination of nip and tuck and you put on the makeup and you pull your hair back and get some Botox, then maybe you are a woman. If you feel that way, then who are we to question? And I think, you know, it's, I did say sort of tongue in cheek, you know, in terms of owing her an apology, but I, but I think we had an opportunity, we had a real opportunity to, to take a step back and examine ourselves and say, why is it that um, Kamala Harris can say that she's both Jamaican and Indian and actually be sworn in along with other uh, Indian American representatives in, in the House, uh, and we see that as legitimate. But if Barack Obama showed up and said, hey, I'm the 44th white president in the United States, we would see him as crazy. And we would say, obviously the answer would be, well, you're not a black man, you're not a white man, we, we're looking at you, we know what a white man looks like. Or, Jason, I know you know this one, well, you, you may think you're white, but wait till the police see you, they'll, they'll remind you of who you are. But if Obama suddenly said, hey, I'm uh, uh, Baraka Obama, I'm Barisha, I'm Barbie Obama, and said, in my lived experience, I've always felt like a woman inside, we would say, wow, ah, how progressive. We, we affirm you, Barisha. And, and I think that is the type of um, insanity that needs to be thoroughly investigated. And I think that Rachel Dolezal gave us an opportunity to, to see that we, we, we treat race as fluid when it suits us. When Joe Biden says that you ain't black if you don't vote for him, and Nicole Hannah-Jones and Jamel Hill make arguments to, to defend that position, they're acting as, they use blackness as sort of a, a, a cultural border wall to keep race fakers like Rachel Dolezal out on the biological side, right? And push actual black men like Clarence Thomas out on the political side. But as I said, we, we treat race as fluid when it suits us, but then we turn around and say, what has always been uh, fixed, which is gender, is now completely fluid. And I, and I start off and I end the piece by talking about Janelle Monet, Grammy-nominated performer, singer, actress, who recently came out to Jada Pinkett Smith and you know her mom and, a, and, a, and, a, and her daughter as um, non-binary. So Jason, we, we've moved from, you know, Caitlyn Jenner saying I'm transgender to seeing a person say that I'm neither man nor woman and accepting that person as sane and having that person's views be affirmed. And when you read the articles in that person, it says, Janelle Monet says that they are non-binary. And that span of seven years could have been avoided I think if we had really paid attention to what we were doing with Rachel Dolezal. I, I'm going to throw a controversial question into this. That's we're okay. fearless. Because <laughs> part of the 
argument you made in, in the piece was that it's incredible that we've reached a point in America where white women and white people want to be identified as black. Mm. And I think that's a statement about like, wow, things have changed here in America because nobody was doing that in 1950, 1850, 1975, and, and but now people are doing, from Sean King, white dude, wants to be black, has played that role on Twitter for years. And so it, it, it makes you have to ask the obvious question. Is there an advantage in modern America to being black? Is, is, is that now an advantage? I'm gonna let Delano go first and then I'm gonna put TJ on the spot and make him answer that question. <laughs> so I, I, would answer, I would answer the question this way. Um, there's not an advantage if you are uh, young, black, male, and poor growing up in the inner city because that means you're going to be a lot more likely to get killed in your own neighborhood. Um, you're going to be going to poorly performing schools. You're likely going to be in a household that, again, if you play the odds, is gonna be characterized by some level of relational dysfunction. Um, more often than not, you're not living with your father. Your parents are almost never going to be married. And there are certain social and economic outcomes that await you absent your own fortitude and hard work or um, some type of outside intervention from family, friends, government, nonprofit, church, whoever. But if you are a black person, um, but, it, but if the question is, does it pay to be black and college educated and socially connected and economically stable and you know all those other things, absolutely. And, and that's why I don't think it's any, it's any coincidence that Rachel Dolezal and the other woman I named who was a professor at George Washington, Jessica, uh, I think she pronounced it Cruz, were both academics because they were swimming in a different lane, right? Um, none of those women are going to sign up to be, to be fake black women in, in the ghetto. They're not doing that. They wanna be fake black women in the academy because doing it there brings with it uh, a certain social context and cultural capital that they could not access anywhere else. So for instance, if Jennifer Cruz um, fakes being a white woman, she can write about the challenges of being a black woman in academia or corporate America or her story of growing up poor in, in, the, in the, the streets of uh, Atlanta or New Orleans. But if she was a white woman, right, same person, change her haircut and it's clear that she's a white woman, there's no way she could write that story. Um, and in fact, she would be uh, pilloried online if she tried to write that story. So, so in that sense, if, if you want to fake being black to gain entrance into the aristocracy, that makes complete sense because people will bend over backwards. You don't even have to be particularly bright. They will take, they'll take Ibram Kendi, they'll take the BLM ladies, white liberals will let you run any game you want on them because they are so guilty 
that um, they would rather march about f- fake hate crimes um, than to really put attention on some of the real issues that are that are going on in other parts of black America. TJ, I'm going to put you on the spot, but I do think Delano has answered the question in a way that I wasn't anticipating, but it's 100 percent on the mark. If you're a black elite, if you've made it to age 25 and you credentialed, there's an advantage to being black in America. But if you had to start at age zero, there's not much of it. There's, there is no advantage. There's actually disadvantage. Yes, yeah, so I was going to point out the same thing. So Delano, everything Delano said at the very beginning, I, I fully agree with. If you have to go through the process of there being a 75% chance that your father is not in the home with you, if you have to go through some of the socioeconomic disadvantages that the vast majority of black, black people in the inner cities go through, obviously that's not an advantage. But if you get to be a 25-year-old white woman and then suddenly tell us you're black, there's an advantage to that. You get a license to say and do nearly everything you want to do and have an entire party come to your defense and make excuses for you. And that's where you asked this question uh, on, on Tim Pool's podcast, Timcast. You said, do, do you guys, you're in a room with a bunch of white guys, filter what you say around black people? And my answer to that is no, but I brace for impact if I don't know them. Because I say whatever mm. I want to you and Delano, knowing that you guys know who I am and I know your principles, right? And you treat me just like you treat anybody else. But if I come around a new crew, uh, whoever it might be, and I would say the exact same thing, I'm still going to say it, but it is a brace for impact moment because I don't know where they stand and they don't feel that I have a license to say the same things that they might. They can say it. I cannot. And that's a big difference. Mm. Huge difference. I... I and obviously, I love Tim Pool's whole crew and show. I thought they ducked the question. They did. If they're honest, that's the answer. For I, I, I don't like to speak for full races. I'm telling you, that's the answer. The true answer is for most people: Yes, I filter what I say, and I just won't say it. I don't operate that way because I feel it's dishonest. Um, you guys, everybody who I'm speaking to deserves the opportunity to hear the truth from me, whatever I'm going to say, my honest self. So I'm not gonna strip you of that opportunity. If you choose to react in a way that I feel is inappropriate, that's your problem. But you still get the opportunity to hear the truth that I'm going to deliver, at least my opinion, right? Um, But again, I would tell you that the actual phrase, if people were being honest, is brace for impact. Because depending on what you Mm. say, there may be a blow up coming. Mm. I I wanna circle back to, is there an advantage and just add one of the major disadvantages of being born black in America. Major, maybe the most disadvantage is the expectations that are placed on you that you will not achieve academically, that, you know, just because I was just thinking about, you know, not only are you growing up in a poor school system, but you're growing up in a culture that said, oh, you talking proper English? Making straight mm-hmm. A's? Oh, you trying to act white. <laughs> and, and so if you can somehow survive all of that and then reach uh, you know, the, the, the level of 20, post-college or whatever, yeah, th- there's a, there is right now in the current culture an advantage to being black. The company in particular, and particularly I would add, there's a huge advantage and where the advantage really comes in is if you express democratic leftist ideas. 
Yeah. Uh, if you do that, whoo, you, there's almost nothing you can't do. There's, there's, the sky's the limit uh, for that person and they're all, and, and Lord have mercy, if you're half black and half white, mm. whoo, there's an advantage to that. And oh my God, if you like to take it up the rear and you're a man and black, <laughs> Lord have what job can't they give you immediately? <laughs> Uh, and that's just keeping it real. Uh, and Delano, that may have been too real for Delano, but Delano's no, got kids, I, man, and that's that's what I worry about with with my yeah. friends that got kids that are boys. It's like they're going to enter a world in people. They're going to beg them. They're going to figure out like gay is where it's at for black men. That's how yeah. you move up the ladder. It scares and, and Jason, the heck out of me. It's, it's one of these things, and going back to Janelle Monet, right, and, and I've seen this, you don't even have to say you're gay. Now, if you say I'm queer, right, which basically this is, a lot of this is people who have never felt like part of the in crowd, who are trying to find ways to distinguish themselves from everybody else, right? It, it's one of these things, Jason, as a, as a both of you guys, as, as sports fans, we can see sort of culturally how sports change in terms of over the decades how athletes presented themselves, right? So basic level, 80s, you got the guys wearing the, the short shorts and you come into the 90s, Fab Five, shorts get a lot longer, hairstyles change, so on and so forth. If you look at the NBA in the 90s, outside of Dennis Rodman, it was, it was rare to find a guy who was tattooed. Certainly not a bunch of sleeves and a bunch of visible tattoos. Rodman, I think, you know, changed the culture, and but I would I would say Allen Iverson changed it even more. So then the generation that came after him, it was rare to find a guy who was not tattooed. But what happens when what used to be subversive becomes status quo? Then you have to go even further. So you just can't get the the barbed wire tattoo on the bicep. You need to get a sleeve. And then you can't get a sleeve. You need to get your entire back and your legs. Then you can't get that. You need to get, in the broader culture, you need to get ear piercings and face piercings and face tattoos and, uh, and, and, and stuff in your eyes and in your nose and get, cut your hair, hair color. color. Right. And, and what you see is um, at a certain point, gay was subversive. It's like, oh, you know, nobody's gay. And, you, and if you are, you got to be in the closet. And then once that becomes normalized, then it's oh, gay is boring. Trans is where it's at. Oh, look, I'm, I'm Caitlyn Jenner. I'm trans. I'm a six time Olympian. And then it's then it's well, every other person is trans on TV. Even that's not the case, obviously, in real life. But every other person you see is trans or the, the issue of transgenderism is on every other station. So now what do you have to do? Now you have to become pansexual or demisexual or non-binary, or queer. And we're to the point, and I said this yesterday on Twitter, where chromosomes in the bio are going to be a lot more useful than pronouns in the bio, because in a couple of years, it's going to be hard to, dis to determine the true identity of a pansexual, non-binary, uh, demi-boy, genderqueer, uh, atheist, polysexual with borderline personality disorder. You're going to need a graduate degree in queer theory from an Ivy League school just to determine whether that person is a male or female. So because we have um, detached reality from the word of God, 
the culture is continuing to push and push and push and push in terms of, you know, personal identity. And you see that sense of narcissism. It's all about me. It's all about how I feel just growing further and further and further. So it's one of these things where, you know, I'm not surprised by Janelle Monet. I'm just waiting for her to say that she's transhuman and then, you know, that she's going to go live with Elon Musk on Mars. D, great job as always. Got to let you go. Thank you guys. I uh, want to tell you guys about our good friends at Good Ranchers. America has a meat problem because almost everything in grocery stores comes from corporate-run farms. What does that mean? Corporate farms raise huge amounts of animals in crowded, inhumane conditions, increasing the speed of animal growth through growth hormone injections. That's why you need to see our friends over at Good Ranchers. With Good Ranchers, their animals are ethically raised and sustainably sourced. They do things the right way and it shows in every box. They only sell 100% American meat sourced from local American farms. And that's right, you get your meat from people and not from corporations. With Good Ranchers, you will receive the best USDA prime and upper choice beef, premium seafood, and chicken that's better than organic. All of that at a price and quality that can't be matched by your local grocery store. And you'll be able to get all of this delivered right to you in the comfort of your home. Get your $30 discount on prime steaks and better than organic chicken. Go to GoodRanchers.com fearless to save on the quality you've been looking for. Use my code fearless and enjoy your box of 100% American meat and your $30 savings. Order now to combat inflation with Good Ranchers American meat delivery. It's one of the reasons I'm looking forward to getting home to Indianapolis. I sent my mother a bunch of good ranches. She's cooking up a bunch of stuff for me and my family and friends uh, to celebrate my birthday. Uh, so I'm gonna be good ranchering it all weekend uh, with my family, making good ranchers memories. All right, uh, Steve Kim, the Korean Cosell. Next. Hey, 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 what's up, Bunks? Hey, what's up, Butter? How you doing, man? What you popping off? Oh, man, you know how I do, man. I'm sitting up and got this good ranch jumping off. You know how I do, what man. Are those burgers? Burgers? <laughs> them, is, them is good, old-fashioned American Wagyu steak burgers. Boy, you better watch your mouth. Hey, I man, let me tell you something. Something about this good ranch is all know. This good ranch is put a song in my heart. Make me want to sing. You yeah. know what I'm Try saying? Try to make it look like rock stars out here with this grill. What we should do, we ought to come up with a little song, a little something pitch to the good ranchers people. See if we can come up with something. What are you thinking, man? What kind of song? I don't know, man. We ought to come up with a little jingle or something, man. Something to put a little, something to, I don't know, man. Maybe something like, um. Do. Got a lot of good folks all around this country Working their jobs, 
coming home hungry, and we guarantee only the best for your family. Yeah, we bring the meat, you make the memory. We must exist in a state of man glorious as we are protected by the red, the white, and the blue. But remember, the mind is the key. The fearless soldier pledges to place God first and foremost in his everyday endeavors of life. We, the fearless army, are one nation under God, indivisible, with freedom and a belief in the American dream. The men bold enough to join our movement comprise what we like to call the new dream team. We are leaders of our families, our churches, and of this nation. We reject the seeds of division that are planted by corporate media misinformation. We affirm that all men are created equal and are endowed with inalienable rights, which are granted by our Heavenly Father. We are bound by honor to accept God's challenge, to take the flag and lead, to cherish, to protect, and to nurture the life of our unborn seed. I am a fearless soldier, so shed no tears for me. I am not a victim. I am the man that God made me to be. Amen. All right, welcome back. Uh, let's roll out uh, to my favorite, and I, I'm saying that in all seriousness. Steve Kim is my favorite regular contributor on Fearless. Uh, I'm calling you my favorite because you're not the best contributor on Fearless, but you are my favorite because you're just extremely clever. You know more about sports than I do, and you always say something that makes me think and or laugh. Uh, so you're my favorite, Steve. Right, Delano's the smartest, you're my favorite. Royce is the best. Uh, TJ's the whitest. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Although, look at the screen right now. I yeah, think, I I think mean, Steve may know. be a little wider. Yeah, you know no. what? I do think Steve is a little wider yeah. than you right now. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I don't know what you, I don't, Steve, where are you at? What, what massage parlor are you at right now? I, no, I see, no. What, oh, no, no, casting aspersions like that. That's not till much later. I don't do it in the afternoon. So oh. anyway, yeah, I'm at Casa de la Cruz, my manager's house here in Las Vegas. I'm uh, here to cover the Shakur Stevenson, Oscar Valdez fight that'll be on ESPN. Las Vegas is extremely busy this weekend uh, because of the NFL draft, but I'm here specifically to cover a price fight. Yeah, the NFL draft, but we're not even going to talk about that. We're going to, Ethan Strauss, who right now is my favorite sports writer, he's got a sub stack, people should subscribe to it. He wrote a piece about the NBA abandoning woke. And he's, he's suggesting that they've benefited, that they've done it very quietly, but the NBA has walked away from its wokeness. 
I, I, I sent you the piece, or I hope yeah. I sent you the piece this yeah, morning. Did. And I, I'm, do you agree, have they subtly backed away from all that social justice warrioring they had been doing, and has it worked? Yeah, well, first of all, I did get the article. I read it, excellent job by Mr. Strauss. And I go back to one of my favorite memes, Homer Simpson coming out from the hedges and then looking around and dropping way back. Because I don't think there's any doubt that it's been clear, but it has been subtle in terms of their backing away and no longer are they Rip Van Winkle. They are wide awake and they understand that the public has spoken that it's one thing to martyr individuals, that's fine, or make them into heroic, if not tragic figures. But if those individuals are behaving like Jacob Blake, don't be surprised or take umbrage when most of America says, no, not with that. And it's interesting, I've seen videos and I'm seeing other articles like Ethan's about the NBA ratings being at a uh, uh, two, three year high Perhaps we should give Adam Silver some credit. Well, there's two ways to look at this. Uh, number one, Jason, if I shove you into a body of water, but I place two 50-pound ankle weights on each leg, but then I save you, I'm not Baywatch. How much credit do I really get for quote-unquote <laughs> saving your life? Also, context matters. Because if you delve into some of the numbers, when you talk about a two, three year high, those numbers from a couple of years ago, and I, and I get it, I get it, the pandemic and the bubble had a lot to do with it. Those were at an all time low. So it's like if I'm going to the NFL combine, Steve Kim, Asian wide receiver, very heady, would play the game for free. And I run a five, nine, 40. And then three weeks later at the University of Korea, hey, his pro day, his 40 yard dash was much better. Really? What did he run? He ran a 5-3. Uh, that doesn't exactly make me Willie Galt. So, again, context matters with all this stuff. I, I, I will say this. My enjoyment of the NBA playoffs this year uh, <laughs> is because LeBron James isn't yeah. involved. <laughs> and and the, 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 I think the underlying thing that wasn't really – talked about in the article, which I'm a little bit surprised, but maybe he'll circle back to it, is that, and again, some of this is age and they have no choice, but some of it I think is into, I think the NBA is starting to back away from its LeBron obsession. Yes. And, and, and I, I think it's well-timed and necessary. And, and look, maybe LeBron has backed off a little bit, too, in terms of the woke stuff. He doesn't tweet as much stupid stuff out. And, you know, I, I don't know if that's a calculated choice or, or if it's just he's not in the playoffs and doesn't want to draw attention to himself. But it, it's, I'm trying to – what do you think post-LeBron NBA will be like? Will it be better? Uh, or is Ja Morant and some of these other guys – uh, big enough stars to carry this league in in a post uh, LeBron James world. Kevin Durant did did he just fall off a cliff, and he won't be the transition person until we find the next super duper star. But post LeBron NBA, what do you think the future holds? You know, Jason. Two years ago, I thought a young man out of Duke who spent the best five months of his life on campus was going to be the guy, Zion Williamson. And he's great in practice doing these fancy dunks. Doesn't look like he's ready to play. My view was that was going to be the guy. 
He was the one individual in the last 15 years that made me watch college basketball. When I saw Duke was playing, I wanted to see Zion. And then and as soon as he got eliminated, like I told you in that Elite Eight game against Michigan State, I don't even recall watching the Final Four that year. All right, so putting that aside, I saw John Morant's uh, dunk a couple nights ago, and I was like, wow, I may have to start checking this guy out. And some of the games have been very good. And the fact that there's actually more storylines. Now, I'm going to go about this in a roundabout way. In years past, the fact that the Lakers didn't make the playoffs would still dominate the news cycle. The fact that the Brooklyn Nets and all their turmoil and their, their dysfunction is such a big story, in my view, you may disagree, is actually progress for the NBA that it's not just about one guy. I mean, the fact that Ben Simmons and, and the Brooklyn Nets, that marriage is like Amber Heard and Johnny Depp, and, and the Nets have a piece of turd on their side of the bed. I find that incredibly enthralling. I'm interested by the whole thing, you know? And then, and now I'm slowly weaning myself back into the NBA. This will never be Steve Kim in the late 80s, where I literally watched every Laker game every single year. I'm not exaggerating. And the fact that I'm now watching inside the NBA clips just to get a kind of a, a quick draft or, or a cliff note on what happened and it's starting to pique my interest a bit, I, I wouldn't completely count out the league. But, Jason, they got to go back to this, though. We have to have players that play at least 75 games a year. Until they take care of that particular issue of load management – don't expect the consumers to go all in on a product that simply does not show up enough of the time. You mentioned your love affair and watching inside the NBA. You've been arguing to me in private. Yeah. That's actually the best part of the NBA. Yes. Charles Barkley, Kenny Smith, and Shaq talking about the NBA is better than actually watching the NBA. Come, do you really believe that? Yes. Yes. It's not even close. And Charles Barkley and Shaq, I thought when they got together, it was too much of a good thing several years ago. It seemed a little bit like there weren't enough basketballs or enough shots for all of them. But I think Shaq is beginning to defer a little bit more to, to Charles. And both of them are what I call the Black Walt Kowalski. Remember Clint Eastwood's character in Gran Torino? They became that bitter old guy. Hey, kids, get off my lawn. He hated everybody. I love the fact that both of them do not give two cents about what these young, entitled players have to say about them. And Charles Barkley, and you t this is right up your alley, Jason. You said that Twitter and social media is poison. Can we give Sir Charles some credit? He has not taken a sip. He'll say whatever he wants without trying to even assuage any feelings. And then Kevin Durant, uh, Kevin, uh, you, you need to get off Twitter and social media. You know, for everyone that's jumping off Twitter, because of Elon Musk, don't worry about it. Uh, Kevin Durant has 50 burner accounts to make up for you, so it's a it's a net. <laughs> it's just neutral, okay? So, but I love the fact that so so Kevin Durant comes back with his own picture of the Rockets of '97 and '98 without having any context over how old it was. And the next night inside the NBA, they didn't make it the elephant in the room. They flat out talked about it, and Charles Barkley said, "Yeah, so what? I don't care. If I hurt your feelings, that's fine." And that show is an American treasure. And I'm hearing reports, I'm reading them, that Barkley might retire.
Jason, I know you're a fan of The Godfather. If it came to Sir Charles, if I'm TNT, I'm going to say, Charles, we're going to make you an offer you can't refuse. You are never retiring. And I'd put a horse head in his bed. I would do a lot of things. I would never <laughs> allow him to leave that show because we need him. Well, you'd probably just send Amber Heard over there to take a dump in his bed. <laughs> uh, that seems to be the new horse's head. <laughs> <laughs> What do you think of all, and I what, I didn't prepare you for this, but yeah. again, because I don't follow celebrity life that much, uh, I found it fascinating this morning when I was reading it, Amber Heard used to date Elon Musk. Ugh. And- uh, it, it was an affair. Nah, Johnny Depp says it's an affair. Okay. They argue they met when her and Depp were married, uh, and then when they got divorced uh, is when things turned sexual or relationship between them. Yeah. Uh, but but I, 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 and that I think Johnny Depp says they were having three ways with another actress <laughs> or whatever. And, uh, <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> and I, I, does that, does Elon Musk being involved with Amber Heard, who seems to be kind of nutty, uh, does that spook you any about Elon Musk and his takeover of Twitter? No, not really. But I do wonder if every ex-relationship of uh, Amber Heard says, man, I had to take a lot of crap. I mean, literally, right? I, I just that, that is some sick stuff. That is some sick stuff. I mean, I think about this. Think about Johnny Depp. You're rolling out, you're getting a glass of water or whatever, and all of a sudden, you're, you know, you're sleeping on opposite sides. You're not spooning with her anymore. Obviously, that relationship's over. All of a sudden, you jump into bed, and you're like, something smells. I have a question. Who changed the sheets in that particular day? Do you just throw them out, or do you actually just try to salvage them? I know these people have money, but there's a reason why they have money. They don't spend money a lot. They're very frugal. I, that's the thing that I think. Like, if someone took a deuce on your sheets, even if they were silk, <laughs> would you even try to salvage them? As this conversation has taken a really bad turn here. It really had, because I'm sure they got staff. I'm sure Johnny Depp and Amber, they didn't clean that mess up. Some maid had the job of cleaning that mess up. Uh, But Steve, uh, thank you so much. Uh, We're going to let you go. Uh, Enjoy your weekend out in Las Vegas. Love you sporting the fearless swag. Uh, And get out in the sun some, man. Get, Get you some color back. Uh, you do look whiter than TJ right now. Yeah, call, we'll me Ken call you the I'm white, the white shadow. shadow. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's roll tomorrow and get you guys into the weekend. Get myself into the weekend. Start eating some of my mama's good ranchers cooking. All right, we'll see you next week. I want freedom. No negotiation, my system, no relation. We all just wanna have freedom. Sitting on the corner, never been alone. I'm breaking my back for freedom. Bless, we are living, get back. We are receiving all the seed when we all wanna be free. We want freedom. I just want, I wanna be. I just want, I wanna be. I just want, I wanna be. I just want.